Hello, you are now listening to The Lives of Writers, a podcast presented by Autofocus Books, a literary publisher of artful autobiographical writing, which you can find today at autofocuslit.com. If you like the show, you can support it by checking out our books in addition to those by our guests and guest hosts, or you can rate, review, or share the show wherever it makes sense to do so. You can stay up to date with what we're doing by finding us on Instagram at autofocuslit. And you can also subscribe to our newsletter, which we'll be sending out in January 2024. This will keep you informed about the podcast, of course, but also about our books and upcoming submission calls for the imprint and online journal. To sign up, you can go right now to autofocuslit.com email. And finally... If you like the show to the point that you'd like to represent it on a t-shirt, we have one available for order in our online store, along with our books at autofocuslit.com books. All right, that's my advertisement. Here's the show. Once again, welcome back. This is The Lives of Writers. Thanks for listening. I am the publisher of Autofocus Books, producer of this podcast, and author of the essay, Home Movies, which will be out from Bunny Press in February 2024. Coming up very soon, you'll hear me in conversation with Lexi Kent Monning. Lexi Kent Monning is the author of the novel, The Burden of Joy, which is out now from Rejection Letters Press. Her writing has been published or is forthcoming in X-Ray, Joyland, Tilted House Review, Neutral Spaces, Little Engines, and elsewhere. An excerpt of Lexi's novel was previously published in Autofocus, and you can find a link to that in the show notes. All right, let's get to it. This is my conversation with Lexi Kent Monning. tech company I do customer support um, and I know that's a lot of people's idea of a nightmare but I actually really love it <laughs> and I've been doing it for like seven eight years something like that um, and it's all email so that's part of why I like it it's all written I had to do like a writing test to get that job so it's all written I don't have to answer phones which is thank God because I am not a phone person um, so but and the nice thing is it's a remote job and it's four days a week Um, so that's huge because it gives me a lot of writing time to have, you know, a three day weekend every weekend is massive. Yeah. And so what kind of tech is it? I mean, it's, you're dealing mostly with the users of the tech. Yeah, exactly. What kind of shit do they have problems with? (laughs) Everything, Michael, everything. (laughs) (laughs) It's not, so it's like, um, I work for a company called Buffer. It, It does, it's like a social media management tool. Um, but it's so funny because I feel like when people get, and we are known for being good, like customer service, our good customer service. So I feel like when people get a good customer service rep, they're like, oh my God, what else can you fix for me? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I actually do a lot of like sending people links to troubleshooting other things than, than just the tool that we support. Um, but I really like it. It's fun to help people. And like, I get really frustrated with tech. Everyone I know does too. So to be able to help somebody make it like a tiny bit easier for one thing that's really frustrating them with tech, like just feels really good. And when you, when someone comes to you and they're all stressed and it's like, 
the thing that's vexing them. And then like in two emails, they're like, oh my God, you fixed it. Thank you. You're like, yay, I made someone's day a tiny bit easier. I am close (laughs) to God. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, I want that to be your next book is uh, a customer service rep who's fixing all the problems in people's lives that aren't the tech that they're (laughs) writing in about. Oh my God. I love that. I'm so into it. Uh, You wouldn't believe what people write in too. Like they'll write about like their emotional issues. They'll write about like their family context. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's, you know, it's a lot. I wonder if it's because like for a lot of people, they don't really like write that much about themselves or like something they're dealing with that like they just start, start describing this trouble they're having and then they're just getting into why they're just frustrated in general. Absolutely. Yeah. It like uncorks something where they're like, here's all my problems or people. It's so funny what people think is the problem. And then it ends up being something else, but you'll get like four paragraphs of what they think is wrong. And then like within that, lots of like, I'm frustrated because this and this, or like this thing is happening and in my life. Um, and you're like, okay, <laughs> let me fix this thing for you. I can't fix your yeah. family dynamic, but let me fix this thing. That's not sending. <laughs> it sounds like writing a book. <laughs> yes, know? exactly. In a way. <laughs> Um, and you said you've been doing that how long? About eight years. And that's in, yeah. New, that's in New York. And um, so the company I work for is totally remote. They don't even have an oh, office cool. and never have. So and that's really anywhere. cool. I can be anywhere. It makes it really easy for me to, yeah, I moved to New York from California, um, doing remote customer support and, um, you know, I can like visit family and, and things like that a lot easier than if yeah. I had to be somewhere every day. So I love that about it. Cool. And then I know... You at one point used to work with bands. Was it in like publicity and marketing that was in California? That was actually in New York. So I first moved to New York when I was 19, right after high school. And because I wanted to work in the music industry. And at that time, um, this was, let's see, I graduated from high school in 2002. So at that point, there were no like college courses for music industry. And there are now. Um, Like I think David Geffen gave a ton of money to NYU to make some big music industry program. But there was nothing like that at the time. So I was like, well, I don't want to get out loans and go into debt when like I know what I want to do. Um, so I just arranged some internships and then just moved to New York and like worked as a nanny and worked at restaurants and then worked my like unpaid internships, um, <laughs> which yeah. then eventually turned into paying jobs. But so, yeah, I did like indie music publicity. Yeah. Um, and why... I was not a very good publicist. Really? but <laughs> yeah. Is that why you got out? So you I mean, you really, really wanted to work in music, but you got out of it eventually. Was it just, you were like, not a good fit. I just like music or. That was kind of it. Yeah. That was my first lesson in like the thing that you love shouldn't necessarily be the thing that makes you money. Mm. Um, and that's something I still kind of live by. I still like, even if I made tons of money off my book, which I don't expect, to, right. I would still want to keep my job. I'm just somebody who likes to have those things be separate. I like to have a job. I like to be good at it. I like to know where my paychecks are coming from that gives me a lot of stability to then do the things I love. And I've found any time that I have mixed those things, it has not worked out that well for me. Um, So I loved the bands I worked with. And then like, I I just feel like I was a bad publicist because you could really tell the bands that I chose versus the ones that I was assigned. (laughs) Because I'd be like, this band is amazing. Like you should come see their show. This record is so good. And then other times I'd be like, hey, so I've got this band. (laughs) I'm sending you in exactly <laughs> so i feel like i'm just really bad at um like no poker face faux enthusiasm yeah, yeah exactly right. <laughs> um and then you also and i know this is also mentioned uh, in the book a couple of times that you were an assistant to actors and celebrities 
was that in Hollywood or in California, right? I assume that it was. was yeah. So I moved to LA. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, first, I'm sure you signed a bunch of NDAs. So <laughs> I did. Yes. <laughs> tell me a little bit about moving to LA and then whatever maybe you could tell me about that time in your life personally and professionally, like how you got into it. Yeah, it. sure. So um, after I left the music industry in New York, I actually moved to San Francisco for a few years. And that was the first time I worked in tech. That was like a temp job that I got doing customer support. At the time, it seemed kind of random, but it was like a startup that had tons of money and, um, you know, one of those like cushy, like we had massages once a week at the office kind of thing. It was so ridiculous. Um, and that was around, well, let's see, it ended in 2008 when the recession happened, the company went out of business. So at that point, I moved to LA. Um, I had a bunch of friends there and kind of knew I wanted to do something in entertainment, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I moved there. Ended up living there for seven years and loved it. I, I'm one of those people that absolutely loves LA. I know a lot of people don't like it, <laughs> but mm -hmm. I love it. Um, and my previous work in music actually connected me to working as a personal assistant in Hollywood. So the two main people I worked for, um, Alicia Silverstone and Zoe Deschanel, I knew their husbands at the time um, through music. They were both in bands. So I had worked right. with each of their husband's bands before. When I moved to LA, I just kind of sent out emails being like, hey, like I moved to LA, I'm looking for work. Um, and at first, Alicia's husband contacted me and was like, oh, we actually need an extra assistant for a while. Like Alicia is about to shoot a movie. The assistant's going to go with her. We need somebody at the house. Um, so I did that for a while. And then um, when Zoe got, when Zoe Deschanel got a new girl, she had had a part-time assistant but needed somebody full-time. Um, so her then husband, Ben Gibbard, who I had worked with before and his band Death Cab for Cutie, reached out to see if I'd be interested. Um, and I was. And so then I worked with Zoe and Ben for a while. They split up and then I continued working for Zoe for the first four seasons of New Girl. Mm -hmm. And so were you working for both of them at the same time? Yeah. Oh, no, sorry. Not Alicia and Zoe at the same time. That was separate. No, time. they weren't. Yeah. Okay. So those were different. But I imagine that's kind of an intense job and probably did you expect it to be intense? Like, did, did you have expectations? But I just imagine like, you know, managing somebody's overwhelming life and then like not getting to benefit of all the great benefits maybe they necessarily get from it. And you're like kind of cleaning up the messes and prepping on the like, was it a challenge? Did you expect it to be? It's funny. It was it's just a very strange life to have. It's a really strange position to have because um, I knew it was going to be intense. I knew it would be a lot of work, but I think until you're really in it, you have no idea what that actually looks like. Um, I really loved doing it because I found it really easy. Like I was just really good at like getting someone else's life together. I've never been good at getting my <laughs> own together, but I'm really right. good at like handling other people's shit. Um, so, you know, it was really long hours, especially with Zoe because New Girl ended up being a hit, which was so exciting. Yeah. Um, but the hours were really intense and they were like known around the Fox lot for having the longest work days and stuff. Oh, yeah. So like, I know I remember hiring, um, we would bring in like food trucks to like boost crew morale or whatever. I remember hiring a coffee truck to come in at one in the morning on a Friday because we were shooting so late. And he came in and he was like, oh yeah, you guys have the worst hours. And I was like, oh no, the coffee guy. Like... <laughs> <laughs> knows how long we're working <laughs> um so it was really like and you know you're on call all the time for those kinds of positions yeah. so if somebody has a rising need or needs something to be driven somewhere you know something like 
they forgot to bring their dress to an event or something like that, you know, you, you immediately have to jump into action. Um, so it was funny because it was, it's, it's stuff that's relatively easy to accomplish, like, you know, errands and dry cleaning and scheduling and, um, stuff like that. It's like the tasks are quite easy, but the pace and the volume is what can be crazy. And then, you know, they have these, their, their lives are so wild and so demanding. They have to be in many places at different times. Like the schedules are really crazy. They'll be in just really surreal context. Like I remember Zoe had to fly, like was shooting for 16 hours. Then at the end of the day had to fly to, I think it was Miami to sing the national anthem for like a baseball game. Um, so it's just these really wild things. You're like, wow, this is, I'm organizing logistics for this thing. That's just so weird. <laughs> like This right. is so surreal. Um, this high, this like, this like highly, ambitious motivated talented person needs a caretaker yeah. it's a kind of a very it's an interesting thing to think about because when you, you think of caretaking right you typically think of like children and the elderly i think right or like the maybe like severely disabled you don't think of it as being like someone who's like so abled in this one like scenario to the point where like they're almost not allowed to manage the simple things that yes <laughs> that we tend to manage right so it's like a different kind of caretaking yeah i guess that's exactly right? it but that's so true it is so interesting because you know zoe has like multiple careers too i mean she's an actor she's a right. musician um after i stopped she's a property sister exactly <laughs> <laughs> so she has so yeah. much going on and she's so talented and so ambitious and so it's funny because it like, if that were me, I'd be so frustrated to be like, oh, I don't even have time to put gas in my own car. Somebody else has to do right. that for me. <laughs> you know? So right. it is so funny because she's so talented, so capable, but there's just not enough hours in the day to do these like very human level things. That everyone just has to get done. Um, so it is, it's a funny dichotomy in that way. And yeah. yeah, like I had done a lot of nannying and stuff in my in my music industry days. Um, and yeah. it is not entirely dissimilar to that where it's like, you know, not to infantilize anybody, but you're like, okay, did you go to the bathroom? Like, do you have your clothes ready? Do you, you know, like, did you eat something? <laughs> yeah. It's very much like, you know, just having to make sure someone's basic life needs are met and be ahead of, you know, be ahead of the, the steps that they're taking to do that. Yeah, I wonder what kind of weird, like, odd psychological remove that must make in ways, like, they might not even realize, like, yeah. the disconnection from those little things that, like, I don't know, like, I can't imagine my life removed from <laughs> from those, I would love to imagine my <laughs> life removed from those things, but I also, like, it, it seems... I think it would create a different kind of anxiety because oh, right, yeah. you have to put so much trust in this other person. Absolutely. Yes. You know? And it's also, yeah. you know, working with women is different too, because there's like a safety element to it. So I would mm. sometimes like have to switch cars with Zoe because paparazzi was like waiting outside of her house. Um, and like, you know, she's going to the doctor or something where you're like, well, I don't want them to follow her to this like very personal life thing she's having. So like right. we'll switch cars and like I'll put a hat on and pretend to be her while they like chase me down the highway and like <laughs> <laughs> try to kill me. Exactly. Yeah, right. So it's really yeah. strange. Like I actually remember like Obama at one point saying that like he really missed driving. He wasn't allowed to drive anymore. And I I just really understood that because like there's just daily life things that you're you basically can't do anymore. And I think that would drive me insane personally yeah yeah i would be fine giving up driving <laughs> that would be one of those things where i felt like i think i would have no remove and no problem well you're a parent you have to cart over. kids around all day so i get that <laughs> I i've always hated driving oh really like, i live i have always lived in commuter <laughs> areas like 
<laughs> anyway, um, okay, so you so um, you grew up in Big Sur. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I grew up in Carmel, which is very close to Big Sur. So okay, the, yeah. in the same county, yeah. And so were your parents always from there or did they move like for the vibes before kids <laughs> at some point or, um, yeah. Yeah, so um, they moved there. My dad is from LA and was born and raised there, major like surfer, like total SoCal kid. And my mom is from New York. Um, my mom went to, uh, they met working for the United Farm Workers in Salinas, California with Cesar Chavez. So my mom was going to do that just for one summer. And my grandpa at the time was like, oh, you're going to meet some California boy and he'll never come back. And that's exactly what happened. <laughs> yeah. So I was born in Salinas. And then um, my great aunt was living in Carmel in a house that my great uncle built. And when she passed away, we bought the house from our cousins and moved. I think I was in seventh grade. Um, we moved to Carmel. And so that's like 45 minutes from Big Sur. It's like the next town over. Um, and when we lived in Salinas when I was a kid, we would go to Big Sur all the time and we'd go camping. And like we had this group of six other families that we would spend like summers with and go to Big Sur, go camping. Like we ended up doing other trips too, but that was like our standby it was always Big yeah. Sur. Yeah. Well, yeah, hearing your parents' backgrounds, the California, New York yeah. <laughs> push-pull in your life and in the book exactly suddenly makes a lot of psychological sense, Exactly, right? totally. I still, like, so I've been in New York, back in New York now for five years, and now I'm, like, thinking about California again. So I can never See, decide yeah. on a coast, and, or maybe it's just that, like, I need to spend a certain amount of time in each place or something. But, yeah, I, like, yeah. always feel the pull to the opposite place, basically. So you know that I know some of this, you know, background, obviously, from your first novel, The Burden of Joy, which is out now. Yay! <laughs> it's the first book from Rejection Letters Press. Um, and this is a book about a character named Lexi, her divorce from and marriage to a man who had had many and then a present uh, infidelity. And then about her intense, emotional and highly sexual next relationship with a man who's just deeply hedonistic. And... In ways, right, I think the characters are doppelgangers, right? And you interact with them in kind of both states of presence and distance. And a big part of the book is re reflecting on this need to kind of caretake or mother or nurture, you know, even without your own children in jobs and relationships and then also in pet ownership. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, ultimately the book, you know, questions like whether your, your impulse to kind of caretake these people is just another hedonistic expression that the behaviors of these two men um, often exhibit. And usually I'll ask a question right here, but <laughs> I'm also familiar with the book, an earlier version of the book, yes. right? Which was presented and written as a memoir. Mm -hmm. And it had a very different structure, though this content was there. And so flash forward to now where it's a novel and you know, reading the novel, a big part of that change to call it that is the structure itself, right? Where the timeline or arc is a little more traditional. Uh, and then the kind of flashback chapters like hang on that that narrative line. So I know it's a really long span of time from starting it, <laughs> it becoming a memoir, it being uh, submitted, 
And then you realizing like, oh shit, this is a novel. Yep. Um, if you could talk a little bit about, I know it's a lot of time, um, a bit about that process and then kind of maybe focusing a bit on like, ultimately what realizing it was a novel, like what that meant for you. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, I like, I started writing this as fragments, not intending, I never intended to write a book. And so I don't recommend that because <laughs> it makes the process extremely long once you realize that you are writing a book and you have to do so much restructuring, etc. So I would never write a book like this ever again. I say be intentional about it. <laughs> So, but I started writing just like fragments. I was going through a divorce and I was kind of just like, you know, therapeutically, but then also just for my own memory, like wanting to notate stuff. Um, so I had these different fragments. Then I read Bluettes by Maggie Nelson, <laughs> as so many people uh -huh. do. And I was like, oh my God, like it blew my shit. I like couldn't believe it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I had never really liked memoir before, but when I looked at it, like that and more creative nonfiction, I was like, oh, I, I see how this could go and how it could not just be, I don't know. I guess when I think of memoir, especially like a divorce memoir, I just want to die. Like I would never read something like that. <laughs> Interesting. Hmm. <laughs> so I like had a really hard time acknowledging that that's what it was. Um, but that was what it was at the time. And I went to a workshop in Italy, a Tyrant Books workshop, Run, run by Giancarlo de Trapano and Chelsea Hodson. And I like for the application for that, we had to turn in 20 pages. So I kind of hodgepodge these fragments that I've been writing together to 20 pages and sent it in, applied, got accepted. By the time we got there, I think it was like three months later, we had to turn in, I think it was like 40 or 50 pages. So I had to work on it a little bit more. Um, and at, when I showed up there, I was like, I don't know what this is. I don't know if this is a book. I don't know if this is just like, something to get me through this time and nothing will ever happen from it. Um, and my cohort and Chelsea and Giancarlo were like, we think you should keep going and do it as a book. Um, so that was kind of the, the impetus for even trying to write a first draft um, was like right. other people believed in it. And like also kind of, I'm really bad at making decisions. So having somebody else kind of tell me what to do, I was like, okay, I'll write a book now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah. It's very empowering. I think some people would need to hear that because it seems maybe rather far-fetched sometimes to yeah. imagine yourself as someone capable of writing a book you don't yet know how to write. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, totally. Right. And so like, I think I just kept thinking, if I just keep writing in fragments, it, it's something that I can accomplish. And that was true. Like that was really helpful for, for me to kind of just, like I, I mentally just had kind of a, a list of scenes in my head and I, I don't know if that's a, I'll ever be lucky enough to have that again. It just was like very clear to me what I wanted to write. Um, and it all mm. ended up being fragments. And so that felt accessible. I was like, I can do a couple fragments a week and like that will be accessible and I can, I can make that happen. Um, so I ended up with the first draft about seven months later. And then um, my first readers were Chelsea Hodson, Giancarlo Trapano and Hurley Winkler um, who mm -hmm. Hurley was in my cohort at that workshop and she's just a phenomenal writer and person. And I have had the pleasure of meeting yes. her. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> she's such a delight and she's such a wonderful reader. Um, and their feedback was so encouraging and so helpful. And so like, like you were saying, the, one of the first, like earlier versions of it, 
it didn't really have a linear time frame. It didn't have really any structure, honestly. <laughs> um, so their feedback was really helpful in kind of identifying how to make it more structured, um, re rewriting it to make it more linear in terms of timeline and narrative. So I kept working at that, kept editing it um, for a couple of years before I started submitting it. And it was still memoir at that point. And then I had coffee with Jeff Rickley, who is one of Chelsea, is Chelsea Hodson's first writer on her Press Rose books. Mm -hmm. um, his book, Someone Who Isn't Me, is phenomenal. He also wrote his as, well, I don't think he wrote his whole book as memoir, but he had a similar trajectory as I did. Um, yeah. where he like took a class at the 92nd Street Y and his teacher was like, I think that you should be writing a novel or something like that instead of mm -hmm. like, I think you should novelize this. And so talking to him about that was really helpful. Um, and then when I met DT and we started talking about putting the book out together, we had a like, honestly, pretty quick conversation, just like, yeah, I think this should be a novel instead of a memoir. Like, that's just what we'll, we're going to call it. And then I went into my last edit, but really thinking of it as a novel instead of a memoir, kind of for the first time. So with yeah. Jeff's encouragement and then with DT's like helpful decision to call it a novel, it just kind of gave me this different liberation on my last edit of I could move timelines around to fit the story better. I could make it more of a narrative arc. Um, I could kind of combine characters and condense that. Um, I just felt a lot more freedom. And I was surprised by that because as a reader, I don't really care about nonfiction versus fiction. Like, I don't really care about that as a reader. And I thought I didn't care about it as a writer. But once I started mm. thinking of it as a novel, it really became clear to me how to restructure it, how to do that last like major edit and how to kind of just like liberate myself from having to be like, this is the, this is my total truth. And it's like, no, this right. is like a version of things and I can exaggerate certain stuff for the story and I can remove stuff that doesn't matter. It just felt a lot. Um, it felt a lot clearer to me as a novel than it did as a memoir. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it also sometimes it gives permission. I think maybe readers of literature who really like, you know, something like a bluettes, like you mentioned, or maybe, you know, auto, what I'll call autofocusy type stuff, you know, that is kind of fragmented and, you know, moves around and is not necessarily beholden to, you know, the typical plot structure. I think calling it a novel gives that writer permission to put it on the fucking structure that works, yes. you know, and it's so I think sometimes like we need permission to do the thing that is like the quote unquote, like simple thing like doesn't seem like, oh, well, that can't work for me because that's too easy of an answer, right? It's like that this story would work on a plot. Like, of course it would. <laughs> we all think that we're different and exceptional, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, of course it would. But you found the way to, and I think what's so important is you found the way to step off. Like there's a plot line and then you have like, your your branches like come spokes that kind of come off of it and then you go right back on it yeah right? and so it gives you the ability to do a little bit of both yeah of, of those things absolutely yeah so i mentioned the doppelganger character somewhere early on in my yeah. <laughs> very long speech about your book uh description about your book but um so yeah i think that you know the characters to me like really all are doppelgangers like there's like a certain commonality there and then there's like the the center inverse is switched or, or maybe the core is the same and the outers 
different. Maybe I can't exactly tell which one's which. Did you always see the characters or the people that they're based on this way? Or was this something that maybe in the writing or revision process you, you realized and then kind of turned it into maybe some kind of device, I guess, for lack of a better word? Like to me, they represent, you know, the characters need to just like completely lose themselves in someone else which is utterly impossible because everyone is trying to completely lose themselves <laughs> to something else or something, right? Or someone. Um, so I guess, yeah, talk about how these characters changed or evolved or didn't, you know, from real life to memoir to, to novel. Yeah, I did not realize at the time how similar they were. It was only in writing it and then through lots of therapy. <laughs> <laughs> right. My favorite writing tool is therapy. I will say mm. it again and again. It's so mm. helpful, honestly. Um, so yeah, through through writing it, through therapy. And then I think just through time, um, you know, taking time away. I'm really bad at letting a manuscript sit for a few months, but it, it ultimately is always so helpful for me to have time and space away from it. And then also time and space away from the relationships themselves. Um, so yeah, it wasn't at the, it, in the beginning, I did not realize it and it wasn't intentional. And then through different drafts and through just time and space, I started to realize like, oh, they're the exact same person. And I'm the exact same person with each of them, even though it feels so different or even though they seemed so different to me. I remember at some point being like, wow, I guess I don't have a type because the guys are so different. And then it's like, oh, shit, they're exactly the same. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. When I was reading the when I was reading the book, I was like, oh, it looks like Lexi here had a type at one point, maybe. Exactly. <laughs> uh -huh. yeah. yeah and so that was also one thing that like novelizing it gave me the freedom to kind of enhance those similarities because like the two guys in real life are not super similar right. I mean there's like definitely predominant things that are similar but um making them characters uh right. really helped me to be able to enhance that and show that those similarities which if it was straight memoir I think it would not be truthful and I wouldn't feel like I was being honest to either of those people that right. those characters are based on. So that's definitely one way that helps to turn it into a novel. Yeah. And, you know, when I think of the book, you know, some of the most pronounced or memorable parts of the book is the sex, the writing about the sex and the drugs and the sex. Mm -hmm. Kind of as I mentioned, like I find the writing in these sections are some of the most specific and vital writing in like treating like just the power and like intoxication of physical or like altered states that the physical can like provide um you know and i wondered like in the process of kind of learning to write the book if this was something that you had to like work up to um like it probably shouldn't feel as bold as it does like the writing like maybe you know it's puritanism <laughs> <laughs> Right. But it shouldn't feel as bold as it does, but it does. And I wondered if it was like a natural instinct to just be able to go there or if it was something you had to get more comfortable with through drafts to get on the page because it is such a challenge. Um, one, to just feel like you can go there with like personal disclosure and then also like getting the words right. Um, anyway, I would yeah talk a bit about kind of, yeah, how you wrote about sex in this book and what that process was like. Yeah, I, I felt it was very instinctual for me and it was very easy. I think because at the time I was writing most of those scenes, I didn't think I was writing a book. And so I didn't think anybody would ever see it. Mm -hmm. And so it was just personal notes to remember these things. 
Um, and thank God I kept all those notes because then I could use them later. Um, but it was just, it was strangely easy for me. I think because at the time it was the only thing that was making me feel better. Like I was getting divorced. I was depressed as shit. Like my life was falling apart. And I was like, the things that make me feel better are the things that make me just feel totally different from this life that I have. So drugs, alcohol, sex, whatever those things were, like I just needed to feel different. And so those those things that made me feel different were noteworthy to me. And I kept, you know, extensive notes about all of these things. Um, and then that ended up just being so easy. To, I was like, oh, I'm just like typing this up from my journal that I was writing in. Um, and then like, you know, refining them and stuff. But it was just strangely easy for me, I think, because I didn't give a fuck about anything at that time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I remember showing up to Italy and Giancarlo being like, oh, Lexi, you're the sex girl. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, okay, Okay. I guess I'm wearing this crown. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's funny because I I just found it so easy. I don't know why. I think because um, like sensory things are really uh, a jumping off point for me for writing. So like if I smell something or if I hear something, those things I like are, are often how I start writing. And sex is so sensory, you know? So like, to me, that's like the jackpot. You're like, oh, great. We've got everything here. We've got like sight, scent, you know, touch, all like all the senses are present. So to me, it was like, oh, this is just easy. And every single thing you write is connected to desire, right? Yeah, (laughs) exactly. It's like right back to the engine. Exactly. Yes, totally. The longing, the desire, that's always the, that's the the base. Yeah. (laughs) Was there anything in the process of writing, like if that came easy, was there anything in the book that took you a bit to kind of build up? Maybe courage is the wrong word, but like to build up, to be like, oh, I I can go there. Was there anything in the book like that for you? Yes, that is really funny because to me, the thing that I really needed to work up the courage for was the stuff about whether or not I wanted to be a mom and that Mm. thought process of like what that was like with Daniel and then what it was like with Leo and that whole that whole part of things. I think for me, that's so complicated as a woman. And that was what was really hard for me. And it was through also a lot of therapy, again, of me even admitting that stuff to myself. That was right. the hard part. It was like identifying those things, admitting them to myself, and then writing them in a way that like not only sounded good, but also fit into the book. So that that to me was the hardest part. And that's the part that I... Also, because I'm I, I'm a major feminist. That's like how I identify. That's my first filter in life. So much of my thoughts and feelings about becoming a mom, especially during those those times, are like really hard with my values to reconcile. Right. So like for me, that's way more embarrassing than any of the sex. Like me compromising on my values is way harder for me to grapple with than writing right. about like a blowjob. <laughs> <laughs> Right. And it's so interesting because that conflict is the central conflict of the book, right? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. there is no book without that. And I guess it's just a matter of can you say what is already being said here, right? right. And like can you articulate that? Because that's that's the hottest button to press. I did book, not right? even realize I didn't realize I was a nurturer until like the third draft of this novel. <laughs> <laughs> it took me that goddamn long. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Which is so yeah. crazy because once I realized and like saw the through line, I was like, oh, shit. And like went right to therapy about it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and that in the book that comes out of Leo's mouth, right? Yes. And mm-hmm. um, 
it's i feel like that's kind of related to what you know maybe we were saying before where it's like you needed someone to just you know like call like call call the spade a spade yes <laughs> you know uh to be able to like put yourself into the context i guess that you know like there's the conflict in you and it's a very obvious conflict right but it's like somebody has to tell you you're writing a novel or you know what right. like, or whatever it is somebody Absolutely. has to tell you you're a nurturer and that's where this conflict the, 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 there's your central conflict to these relationships exactly that was that's exactly it i'm like my favorite thing when i'm reading or listening to a song or watching movies when there's something that resonates with you in a way that is so distilled and you're like, oh my God, like, yes, I've been thinking about this in such like circles for so long, but the way that one lyric is sung or the way that one sentence was written, that's exactly how I feel and like how, what I've been looking for. And so I feel like that's what I was getting when, when people at my workshop were like, you should write a book. Like this is a book. And when the Leo character, like in real life was like, you're a nurturer. And I was like, oh, like having somebody distill it down for you is so like, I need that a lot of the time. I'm really bad at self-realization. It takes yeah. me so long. <laughs> <laughs> so having other people give me directives or or saying these things about me, I'm like, oh yeah, okay, great. Now, mm -hmm. I, now I get it. Now I can move forward with this yeah. context or understanding this differently. Yeah. I think part of it too is like, we oddly have, it's easier for to, to trust somebody else's opinion of us than yes. to trust our own opinion of ourselves like we will gladly outsource <laughs> outsource that to other people for, I, you know and i don't know why like i don't know why i because i feel like mm -hmm. i probably am not well i am pretty trusting maybe to a fault but like i think like in a way i don't normally trust people with other things like that but i think i do trust other people with my perception of myself sometimes for better or worse right me too i'm totally the same way even like you know, if I hate a picture of myself and someone else is like, oh, that's such a good picture of you. I'll be like, oh, OK. okay. <laughs> I love it now. <laughs> put it up on the wall. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> it's going uh, on the gram. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah. And so I think the book overall, like, you know, when, it, when I look at it as a whole, it's a pretty sad and mel melancholy book. Right. I mean, it's dominant undercurrent is like heartbreak. It, mm -hmm. But I think I mean, in the obvious ways of of romantic relationships but i think in all its forms you know about uh all of life <laughs> and how heartbreaking <laughs> it is uh and in other people's lives and in, like the minor like the minor heartbreaks in people's childhoods like i don't know like i don't know like this was something that like was very memorable to me in the in the book for some reason maybe it's just because i i have kids and i'm like constantly thinking about like their trying to understand their experience of the world and it's impossible but the part where like daniel's dad like it's just mentioned it's not even a part of the story it's like daniel's dad like got married like the day before his birthday and like how that like created like these complications like in your relationship later and you know like you think of something like that it's like emotionally like very tragic but like to the outside world somebody could just like brush it off as like as like not a big deal I don't know. It's just, I really like those little brushstrokes in the book, like whether intentional or not, it just reminded me, I guess, of how heartbreaking everybody's childhoods are, even when they're good. <laughs> and that we're just yeah. like constantly contending with that in every relationship. Absolutely. I totally agree. And I also like, you know, I think I had a, an exceptional childhood and I'm so lucky, but it's funny for me because like Big Sur was such a, an important part of my childhood and of my my upbringing 
And then I kind of felt like that was taken away from me once Daniel infiltrated that mm. area. So it's like this this wonderful part of my childhood is now like tainted because I don't I don't get to think of it the way I used to with the purity that I used to with the children's eyes that I used to. Now it's something completely different for me. And so I think that's I don't know. I, I think I kind of wanted to create that parallel of the good good childhood something being tainted later and then tainted childhood and then how that affects Daniel's life later too. Mm-hmm. Um, there's like, you know, everyone has such different complicated lives. Um, I really, you know, try to understand that and try to, I just remember like my sister one day said, you know, people's lives are just hard. And I was like, yes, mm-hmm. you're so right. Like <laughs> I can't like get pissy at the barista for not like returning my enthusiasm when I say hi or whatever it is. Like, I don't know what their day is. And when you know people, when you're when you're lucky enough to have close relationships with people, you get to know all those things. Um, and I I never want to brush those aside. I think those are so important. And sometimes it takes you realizing that about someone else's life for them to be like, oh yeah, wait, like that is fucked up, or like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is hard about my life. talked about therapy realizations right so i think about the, the epilogue mm-hmm. um, yep. where you know like I, the narrator kind of like redeems the portrayal of themselves and daniel i think and maybe the the other characters like and it does mm-hmm. seem like i i marked i i, I wrote because it's funny you mentioned you were kind of already mentioned it i say uh therapy hindsight right where it's like the you told yourself the story and then like now that you told yourself the story, you can look at it and like fill in some of those gaps, right? And mm-hmm. w- what was interesting to me about it is like, when you're writing in the first person point of view, you're limited to your point of view of that person in the past, right? And it's a struggle when the point of view you have now writing it uh, is different, right? But you still want to honor that point of view so badly, right? Because like, it was it was so big. I wonder. I, I guess I wonder if you would speak maybe to that. I guess adding in the epilogue, like realizing, like, well, I can't rewrite the narrative, right? Like that's the point of view. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, talk about that choice. Absolutely. I was. I was. So yeah. Thank you for asking this question because it's like one that is very important to me. The epilogue. It was obviously the last thing I wrote. I wrote it a few months ago. Like it's very recent. Um, and it was. I was going through my last edit of the book with DT and he texted me one day and he was like, I'm, I'm toying with the idea of you doing an epilogue. And I was like, good, because I am too. I was like so excited to hear that um, <laughs> because I feel so removed from the narrator now and that, that time in my life that feels like it happened to another person. Um, and I was really grappling with how to, I was like, I don't know, like totally therapy hindsight. Like the person who Daniel is inspired by is someone I adore. And I think he's fantastic. And like, I know his version of this would be totally different. And I know that my version is what happened to me and that's truthful, but I know that his would be completely different. And I have no ill will towards him at all. Like I think he's wonderful and we're still friendly. And so I've started to feel really concerned about being very, um, myopic about the whole perspective and 
also kind of wanted to reflect the reality of like how time and space can make you feel differently about something and and heal those things too so I my parents are just like just read it for the first time I didn't I didn't let them read it for a really long time oh yeah so my parents and my sister all just read it in the last few days and they were all like you know calling and texting me and emailing me being like oh it's like it's so hard to read like we're so you know like your your pain and and I was like you guys like I understand yeah. I, I knew it was going to be hard for you to read but that was a lifetime ago. That was a totally different person. Like that's yeah, yeah, a snapshot yeah. of how things were at a, a very specific and um, yeah, a very specific time in my life that like some people will have, some people won't have, you know, divorce, breakups, whatever it is. Um, but you're not like living on that. Like how, how many years, seven years, six years later, like that's, that was me at the time, but that feels, and that's also part of why I wanted to make it a novel was like, the narrator ended up feeling like a character to me. It didn't feel like me anymore. Um, and so making it a novel and then writing the epilogue to me was like kind of just how I could reconcile it with myself of like releasing this and getting really intimate with other people's life details too. Um, I just felt like making it a novel was truer because it was my version of things. That's not how that person really is in real life. And it's not reflective of how we are with each other now or how I feel about any of it now. Like that all just feels like a different person to me. So writing the epilogue, I just felt like it felt really satisfying too to be like, you've, you've just like, like readers have gone through like almost 200 pages of just like sadness. <laughs> and like, <laughs> let me just give you a little idea that like I'm doing well now. I'm, I'm happy. Fine, yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Ladybird is thriving. Like, <laughs> totally. Um, do you think like, do you think that's maybe like what ultimately leads you to, to personal writing? Kind of like what I was saying before, like that pull to like remember or honor a person that you were like, I think like I have a, I have one tattoo. It's a bad tattoo. <laughs> and that is exactly in a weird way is like why I got it. I was like, 22 and I knew I was going to regret it and I knew I was going to be a very dangerous person who would hate it and I was like fuck you <laughs> to myself and I and I deal with that every day and I kind of like I don't deal with it like it's like it's not a it's like whatever it's a tattoo it's not it's not a, I, I don't even like realize I have it that much but it's like I think about that kind of it's like is that my impulse to to write too like personally like even though I know in the future I'm going to look back and in some way feel differently about the thing I created than I did when I was making it or did when it came out but I'm still just like I, I want that person to I don't know like I want that person to exist anyway is that like I don't know is, is that does that resonate with you at all like absolutely especially because I have a ton of tattoos that I regret <laughs> <laughs> and I've gotten some removed actually so. <laughs> there you go. yeah I definitely feel that way and I love um you know, the Edward LeVay book, Auto Portrait, I love that title so much because to me, that's exactly how a lot of this writing feels. Like when you're when you're writing such personal work, to me, it really is like a portrait or a snapshot of, of you at the time. Um, and I also kind of take some solace in that of like, oh, that was me then. That's not me now. Like I can right. totally compartmentalize that. Um, yeah, I definitely think so. I think um, there's stuff that I have published that I'm that I hate now and that I feel so removed from, but I also know that 
at the time it was super important to me and I felt strongly enough to submit it to a bunch of places until I got accepted. And so, yeah, I mean, I think, I don't think anybody goes through life being like, I'm super happy with everything I put out into the world. (laughs) Or all my tattoos. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Or maybe there are. I mean, there probably are, Um. So yeah, and I think about like what you're saying with like the person you are when you wrote it, but I'm also thinking about like the person you are when you're publishing it. Yes. You know, too. I'm not so I'm not insinuating that you or I will look back at our, you know, forthcoming works or something and and later and be like, "Oh, I I regret doing that." Um, but like you know, you're doing a lot of events for it like right now and stuff and you know, you're you're talking to me. I heard you on another podcast. Um, you, you're, you're doing, you know, a lot of stuff to talk about the book and, and get it out there. And I guess I just wonder if you would maybe talk about like how it feels <laughs> like mm-hmm. in an odd way, like because there's some discomfort around like promoting, I think, yourself when you're doing uh, personal work. And then there's a part of it that's also like extremely exciting and maybe like the first big payoff for all this work for years of being in anonymity and just hoping, you know, to find a connection. Yeah, I guess since, you know, finding DT Robbins uh, and Rejection Letters Press and now having it, what's it been like to kind of celebrate both selves, I guess? <laughs> it feels really exciting. I think part of it is, um, like you said, like all, all the time and work we put into these things. Um, I know a lot of writers really hate self-promoting. I kind of don't mind it because I worked my ass off and it feels nice to like get to finally share it with people. Um, And I think that we owe it to the work to like promote it and to, to work as hard as we can to get it into other people's hands. Um, I definitely am starting to get sick of like when I'm looking through my Instagram stories, just seeing the same thing over and over. And I'm sure other people are too. (laughs) (laughs) but I think it's like the least I can do. Also, I feel beholden to DT to like really promote it as much as I can. Um, Like we feel like a team. And so I want to make sure I'm pulling my weight. Um, And yeah, like, I don't know. I I get for people who don't feel comfortable with that kind of thing. It's not my first instinct either, but it feels really satisfying too. It feels like having these kinds of conversations is so worth like feeling like, Oh, am I posting about this too much? Like, am I, are people sick of my book cover already? Um, because like getting to have these conversations is so meaningful. And I think um, I was saying this to someone, I think my sister the other day, I was saying like, it took a long time to get this book published. Um, and I'm so glad that the earlier versions weren't published. And I'm so glad it took as long as it did because I'm very removed from the subject matter now. And I think that's really helpful too. So like going into starting to do interviews and stuff, I was a little bit nervous about how it would feel emotionally. And it's been totally fine. I think I just like, it just feels like a victory lap of like having gotten through all that shit. (laughs) Right. I know. I'm going to, I'm going to make a confession that's going to surprise absolutely no one. But I also have found out that I think that I am into promoting. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, like, look, I'm doing a fucking podcast. But it's like when you were talking about the thing you were saying where, like, you had to, like, think about your ideals and then, like, reckon with the fact that, like, oh, oh, okay, in my mind, I'm a radical feminist. And also deep down, I'm a mother and I or I want to be a mother. And and those both things are true. Mm -hmm. And it's like kind of the same thing where like in my conscious, like in my mind, I don't want to think of myself as being someone who enjoys promoting. Uh, And I think that 
if you asked me any other time, I would not tell you that I did. And I'll probably look back later and be like, I actually don't like, I don't know why I said that. But I think that, um, I don't know, maybe it's because it's the personal writing and, and a lot of the promotions you just talk about yourself and what you're doing, maybe it's just an extension of that. Mm-hmm. But I've, I, I'm finding that like, if I really uh, allow myself to look more objectively at all the feelings I feel when I'm doing this, there is a part of it that's very thrilling. And I think that more writers can admit that and that it's okay and that they don't have to say, oh, I'm uncomfortable with self-promotion because I think most people are probably uncomfortable with it, but it doesn't mean you can't like the parts of it you like. Yeah, <laughs> you <know? laughs> exactly. Like I, I started to feel like, oh, it's a prerequisite to say that you hate the self-promotion. And like, I, I get that. But at the same time, like I'm always so bummed when I miss somebody's awesome piece because they only tweeted it once or something. I'm like, mm-hmm. you know, I'll like six months later be like, well, how did I never read this piece at the time? And it's like, oh, because they only promoted it one time. We're like, of course I didn't catch it. Um, right. So I am all for people promoting themselves as much as possible. And especially like writing is such a solitary thing. Like, so Hurley Winkler's Lonely Victories newsletter to me is like so it's such a, I, I look forward to it every it's every week or two weeks now. Um but like, you know, writing, it's all these lonely victories. And so when we do get to like have something out in the world and have a chance to discuss it with people, I think it's important for writers to take that opportunity. Um, you know, we, we work alone and with a screen for hours and hours and hours of our lives, years of our lives for some projects. And so like, hell yeah, promote it and feel okay about it because you did this. <laughs> right, totally. I'm sure there are people who are like just utterly terrified and it's just like yeah. very, 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 very shy. I'm sure there are those people, but I totally my, message get that. To, my message to the rest of you who are maybe more like oddly conflicted about it would be maybe you do like it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so, uh, what, so what are you working on now, right? I mean... This is, have you, I know you've done like, like you've put out other things not related to the book, mm-hmm. you know, in the span of time. Has anything kind of taken on, as, taken off as like another project? Or are you, are you still kind of finding your footing or what's going on? Yeah. So um, in the writing of this book, the first few drafts had like triple the sex. And, <laughs> <laughs> and Chelsea Hudson was like, I would reduce the sex by half. And I was like, okay. <laughs> But I was taking all these scenes that I actually really liked. Um, And so I started like saving them for something else. And then um, ended up, I started writing and I've written a first draft of a sex memoir. And it's about, it's called, right now, it's called Every Other Thought. And it's a mix of like consensual and non-consensual experiences I've had, how they inform each other, how, I don't know, how I kind of reconcile all of them. I feel like I've read a lot of, yeah, either erotica or like rape memoir and like nothing that mixes the two. And for me and like pretty much all of my women friends, it's much more of a mix than, than those two polar opposites. Um, so I started just getting really interested in that and, and reading about that stuff and not quite finding anything that echoed how I felt about stuff or like the process I was going through of trying to figure out how these things mix together or don't or or whatever. Um, So I have a first draft of that. I haven't touched it in like two years, Um, Uh but it is definitely- Maybe it's a novel. (laughs) Yes, oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Shit. (laughs) (laughs) But I think once like all this book promo is done and stuff, I think that's the next thing I'll 
I'll turn to is try to work on a, another draft of that. And then I also just always love writing like micro poems and flash and I will always be submitting stuff. And I always like, I just really like doing that because you know, when you're working on longer projects, it can be so defeating. You're like, Oh, another goddamn draft of this fucking piece of shit. You know? Like, <laughs> right. And so to have like those smaller things of like, first of all, just mentally working on something that's shorter to me always really helps me feel like, I don't know, renewed of my love for writing. And then it's so nice to like have things that you're submitting that other people are reading. It can be so encouraging to get that validation and then get that, you know, have, have people read your work when you're kind of usually just siloed in front of your computer. So um, I really like, you know, having a, a bigger project I'm working on, but then also always working on like little bits and bobs. All right. That was my conversation with Lexi Kent Monning. You can check out her novel, The Burden of Joy, from Rejection Letters Press, wherever you buy books. And if you're interested in throwing a pre-order on my essay, Home Movies, which is out from Bunny Press in February 2024, you can do that at bunnypress.org. That's press with an E. And if you're interested in checking out our books at Autofocus, you can do that at autofocuslit.com slash books, which is also where you can find that t-shirt I mentioned at the beginning of this show, which remains a great way to support us right now. And if you're still listening and you feel like rating or reviewing the show wherever you listen, that would be awesome and greatly appreciated. Okay, that's it. Thanks for listening. Till next time.